0: Uh, remiss to share with the church how happy I am to have my wife back with me in church. And I know that I speak for her and both of us that we really appreciate uh, the room for us to be able to to grieve and also to thank you for your cards and your prayers. Um, we're not done grieving yet, but... Uh, We just wanted to thank you for bringing us this far. Arlene mentioned before about prayer meeting, about me always wanting to go between the lines. I'm glad that she appreciates it. Not everybody does, and I hope after today you don't mind going between the lines a little further, as to uh, into our study. But. When Samuel warned Israel about desiring a king, he said this, uh, this happened. It said that the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They said, no, we're determined to have a king over us so that we may be like other nations and that our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. It's just the price of doing business in this world is what Israel was saying the price of being safe. They were sick of going up and down with the judges and being safe and being attacked and being persecuted. They were tired of that. And one thing that they noticed was that all the other nations had kings that would fight battles for them and that's what they desired. They desired that peace, they desired that safety. See, but Samuel realized and knew that a king has to oppress to be in power and to stay in power. He'll eliminate rivals to the throne, which becomes his very first priority. And then he's able to defeat others by oppressing them. The whole system is built on some sort of oppression. And what Samuel was trying to get across to Israel, what he knows now and what he knew then and what hopefully we know now is that there's a real human cost to the indulgence of a king. This is what Samuel said the real problem with having a king was. That someone will have to pay for the king's indulgence and to keep that king on the throne. And the temporary peace that a power like that can bring about, someone will have to pay. And Samuel made it plain, it's the people that will have to pay. And from Constantine in 321 AD, all the way to Louis XV, and even the Puritans executing Charles I before they came to America to supposedly be free. The kings of the earth believed that they had God as a partner. They believed that all that they did and the oppression that they did is because God willed it. The Crusaders actually wore banners that said on them, God wills this, and it's always been so. The world was introduced to Charles III a couple of days ago. Charles I was executed by a religious power that believed they were doing God's will. That leads to the time of where we left off of what we are studying with our, with our beast. Here we are in Revelation 13. We began last week with studying this second beast. We spent weeks uh, dissecting and picking on the first beast and eventually you got to give way to the second one. I saw another beast that that rose out of the earth had two horns like a lamb and it speaks like a dragon. What we learned last week is that that this beast from the land rises up around the time that the first beast's reign ends. And we've brought that up several times, the 1260 year reign of that first beast, 538 AD all the way to 1798. The second one though is lamb-like. First one looked exactly like the dragon. The second one though is lamb-like. It has a quality that appears gentle as Jesus but uses all the dragon's authority when he speaks. He creates an image to the first beast. He doesn't even need the first beast to pull off his brand of fear, force, coercion, and persecution. He doesn't need the blueprint. He takes the first beast's power and he reapplies it in a new way. And I'm afraid I have to say it. It's an American way. First beast gives the woman some breathing room though. He does appear lamb-like. The woman needed breathing room. She had to have it. Because remember, the old world lived by the medieval mentality that faith was associated with nation. One nation, one faith. Belief that ecclesiastical uniformity was essential to political health. And that peace kept, was kept alive and well from that joining of ecclesiastical or church, religious and authoritative power, bringing it together. There was no room anymore for freedom. No room absolutely for religious freedom. So this beast at least claims to give groups of people an opportunity to do something about how they would be ruled. The land opens up for the woman. Our country was supposed to be beginning this grand experiment that we called liberty. And it was prophesied. The earth came to the help of the woman. It opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. It it gives the woman room from this persecution. The earth opens up. It brings much needed endless, it seems, space. The new world gives space for religious experimentation. The new world supposedly promised religious freedom. Denominations that were never possible in the old world are now possible. This space is crucial. It was crucial for our own church. Seventh-day Adventism could have never been born in the old world. She needed the space. We need space to be remnant because there was no space for anyone to remain who wanted to stay free. Now don't misunderstand, again, the beast is lamb what? Lamb-like, looks good on the surface. But I will tell you that most colonies didn't see it that way. Massachusetts Bay Colony, by law, you had to be a Puritan. Those guys I was just telling you about, executed the emperor, handed it over to Oliver Cromwell and ran. They passed a law, November 4th, 1646, Massachusetts Bay Colony makes it a capital offense to deny that the Bible is the word of God. All you have to do is deny that the Bible is the word of God and they will execute you. So one thing that's real important is that at least in Massachusetts Bay, you were free, but you were only free to be what? Well, you could say that you were only free to be a Christian, but actually you were only free to be a, Puritan Christian, which may have been freer than in England, but it certainly is only a superficial freedom, isn't it? So in the 1630s, there was a Puritan that lived in Massachusetts Bay, a a left wing, wing nut, if you will, looking for his own experiment. And he couldn't find it in Massachusetts. And he said so. He had three problems. He believed that if you're truly free, you have the right to separate rather than to conform or reform. He would not take the civil oath concerning religion. And he didn't appreciate, and he said it, the pre-art practice of appropriating land from the natives without paying for it. As an Adventist, and and supposed student of religious freedom, we all know who this guy was, don't we? His name was Roger Williams. And he was banished for those beliefs from Massachusetts Bay. So he decides to make his own colony. With land that he buys from the natives, that he purchases from the natives, he establishes Rhode Island. A colony where you could believe just about anything. There were a few restrictions. And those restrictions were too much even for certain people that lived in Rhode Island. All sects were welcome there, even Quakers and Jews. And there was one Quaker who thought it was too restrictive, so he created his own. And his all sects offered uh, refuge for minorities. Even Anabaptists found refuge in this one colony. So it is no accident that William Penn founded a a colony that today still has more Amish and Mennonites living in it than anywhere else in the country. In Penn's and William's case, the woman indeed gives them room the land, right? In 1644, Williams wrote the bloody tenet of persecution. In it, he calls for the separation of church and state. One, this is uh, once amongst everything that's in the tenet, but just two things that, that are really applying to what we're studying today, is that he calls for the separation of church and state, and he negates the belief that ecclesiastical uniformity is essential to political peace and health. So you see, it even takes a a rebel in order to rebel against the rebels who rebelled in the old world to try to find some sort of freedom that the beast supposedly promises. Because even in the founding of the new world, there are many who don't feel that religious freedom was necessarily a good idea. Those who fled persecution persecuted once they got here. And we were already told it would happen. The woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent into the wilderness to her place where she's nourished for times and half a time. But even there, from his mouth, the serpent poured water like a river after the woman to sweep her away. The persecution begins almost immediately, even as the beast promises some lamb-like qualities of freedom. So like we did with the first beast, do you mind if we leave the beach, we leave Revelation 13 and our two-horned beast to get a different view of him from the church? Is that okay? We have to because Arlene already read it to us. We go to the time, we go to a different, uh, the era and the time, but also a different lens to view the beast with, and the era and the time is the church at Philadelphia. Jesus says, "Right, these are the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Jesus says, I know your works, Look, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Welcome to the church in the era of Philadelphia. Goes from 1798 CE to about 1850 CE. She's known as one who is weak. Her strength is she has no power. Interesting, huh? And one thing that you can't deny that happens during this era is that this church era straddles, if you will, the second great awakening, 1790 to 1840 or so. It's still the most powerful religious movement in American history. It's what leads people to believe no, my choice of words. It what leads people to believe we are a Christian nation. I have to be very careful with that. Second great awakening didn't make America a Christian nation. It led people to believe we were a Christian nation. By the way, the last great preacher, if it goes to 1850 or 1840, the last great preacher of the second great awakening was a former deist Baptist preacher named William Miller, who'd been preaching by 1840 for nearly 30 years. Some things that didn't happen to be believed at the time. But the awakening brings out a wave of social reform that we've never seen in this country before. They sought to right all injustice and approach every problem with a solution. Abolition of slavery, abolition of war, abolition of poverty, health reform, temperance reform, mental health reform, labor reform, equality of the sexes. All of our modern Bible and missionary societies were formed during this time. And began to teach personally that we could achieve social and religious and spiritual perfection if we just put our minds to it. The aim was to bring about the millennium at which supposedly the end brings the coming of Jesus. See, most of of the evangelical world, even up to today, believes that the second coming is a post-millennial event. William Miller is one of the very first preachers to begin to preach that it is a pre-millennial event. We are one of the very few Christian groups, especially in North America, that believe that the millennium comes after Jesus' second coming. And if you're looking for one of the ways, one of the ways that that, uh, the American brand of Christianity can open up a door to getting back in bed with with national, uh, militaristic, authoritative power, Then just believe that you could bring about, that you believe that you could bring about the second coming if you just got your act together for a thousand years. Are we going to want it bad enough to ask for military authoritative power to help us achieve this? In a couple of weeks, I think one of, the, one of the ways that we have to begin to address what the problem that, that, that I'm trying to get to today and have been for the last few weeks is to, is to look at our history. And I think that God gave us all the tools in the world that we could avoid what is happening. And one of them is the idea that the second coming comes after, I mean, before the millennium. That way we don't even give into the temptation to try to bring something about using the power that the first beast used. But Jesus went on to say, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but are lying. I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have what? That I have loved you. See, American Protestantism immediately begins to attack the freedom, and they begin to make this uniformative. John is trying to tell us that this is a religious power again, the same way that was revealed to us throughout history that the first beast is a religious and civil power. American Protestantism begins the same thing. The lie starts in the synagogue. The lie starts in the church. There's a growing right beside this, another beast, another religious empire that's on its way up. Landlike, like but still a what? Still a beast. But notice, remember always what Uh, Jesus commends Philadelphia for you have but little power. In Greek, literally, it's mikron, exis, dunamine, mikron, microscopic, dunamine, power. A church that's not willing to look for power outside of Jesus, his Holy Spirit, and his relationship with the Father. In 1784, Patrick Henry introduced a bill in Virginia calling for state support of teachers of the Christian religion. Future President James Madison steps into the breach and in a carefully argued essay entitled, Memorial and Remonstrance Against Religious Assessments, he laid out 15 reasons why the state had no business supporting Christian instruction. In it, he notes as a Christian himself that Christianity had spread in the face of persecution from worldly powers, not with their help. He says Christianity disavows a dependence on the powers of this world. For it is known that this this religion both existed and flourished, not with the support of human laws, but in spite of every opposition in them. And of course, he was echoing his friend, Thomas Jefferson's idea of the separation of church and state and praise God that Madison is the one sent to the Constitutional Convention to make that voice. And when he gets to the convention, he makes this known. And the convention remembers Roger Williams and they now have the choice. Do we go by way of Massachusetts Bay or by way of Rhode Island? And they remember Roger Williams and they use it. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The First Amendment takes religion as the first of fundamental freedoms given to you and me. Along with the freedom of speech, the freedom of the press, and the right for the people to peaceably assemble and petition the government for redress of grievances. Philadelphia is lauded by Jesus as one who finally lets go of this pull to marry God and country, to marry church and empire. At first, this truly looks lamb-like, doesn't it? But the image of the beast, the idea that religion could be free is immediately challenged. And it'll be brought about when this second beast opens his mouth and begins to speak. In other words, when this civil religion finally rears its head and opens its mouth, it will be a call or a cry for a civil religion. I haven't been a Christian for that long, relatively. 35 years now. And it wasn't long after I became a Christian that I heard, maybe I, I always heard it, but it didn't interest me before I was born again. But I hear the cry in this country, we've been hearing it for years now, we have to get back to the Christian foundation this country was founded on. Even to the point to where they're making up their own history now, which is the only reason I'm standing here talking about this. American Protestantism immediately begins to attack this freedom and to make civil religion authoritative again. And he can't do it without attacking our freedom. So I have to introduce you to a term. I told you at the very beginning that the term that I wanted to, for us to be able to get to know, and to get to know it so well that we can spot it wherever it is, so that we could denounce it and run away as fast as humanly possible. But the term is Christian nationalism. The idea that being a Christian has to be wrapped up in a national identity. Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry, both sociologists, uh, two years ago, wrote this book, Taking America Back for God. And Christian nationalism, they say, is a cultural framework that idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with American civil life. Christian nationalism contends that America has been and should always be distinctively Christian from top to bottom in its self-identity, interpretations of its own history, sacred symbols, cherished values, and public policies, and it aims to keep it that way. But the Christian in Christian nationalism is more about identity than religion, It carries with it assumptions about nativism, white supremacy, authoritarianism, patriarchy, and militarism. They will go on to say, how do researchers identify Christian nationalism is by how uh, uh, Christians answer these questions. They point out that Americans who embrace Christian nationalism strongly agree with statements like the federal government should declare the United States a Christian nation. The success of the United States is part of God's plan. The federal government should advocate Christian values. 10 years ago, just 10 years ago, the number one indicator to an evangelical that you were a Christian was church attendance. Today, the number one indicator that you are an evangelical Christian in this country is that you're a member of the Republican party. 10 years ago. The beast raises up this national Christian. It allows us to be Jesus up to the point to where freedom for all just becomes too hard or too high a price to pay. Alan Reinach, who is the Pacific Union of Seventh-day Adventists, leader of religious liberty and director of churchstate.org defines Christian nationalism for us like this, a Christian religion without the biblical Jesus because we can replace the national Jesus with the biblical Jesus because he's a whole lot easier to relate to It's without Christ's teachings, no beatitudes, no blessed are the poor, no blessed are the peacemakers, no love your enemy or love your neighbor, no beating your swords into plowshares. Instead, an idolatrous patriotism that confuses American power with the kingdom of God. See, the second beast applies the same force and the same deception. I told you, all he does is reapply it through American eyes to give it a new coat of paint. The beast always looks like they're winning. The deception is, is that the beast always looks like it's winning. It accepts the world's definition of success. More people, more money, more power, force, fear, might makes right. The majority rules. And it convinces worshipers that they embrace that power and that the embrace of the power is warranted. Why? Because they have the truth. They've got the Bible. They've got God on their side. The only difference between the first beast and the second beast is that the first beast arrogantly looks at the second beast arrogantly looks at the first beast and says, well, you would have been okay if you'd have had the truth. In other words, a persecutor's ends always justifies the means. And the longer we're here, the harder it's going to be to keep that wall up that you and I just amend just a few passages ago. Congress shall make no law. If you want an example of what I'm talking about of what we were willing to to look upon and make sacred in our own history is that the Declaration of Independence said this, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are what? Are created equal, that they're endowed by the creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I know we've been down this road just a year before, but I need to remind, we need to be reminded that when the 56 delegates signed this dock to send to King George, went home, they got there. 41 out of the 56 homes and farms were staffed by slaves, including the author who wrote those words. ones who believed that all men were created equal with inalienable rights could gladly, gladly pursue their life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, which for many included worshiping the lamb, but had no problem denying it to others. This was the beginning of red, white, and blue Christianity. Slavery had already become a Christian law long before this. In 1667, the Virginia legislature enacted a law that baptism does not free a slave. And every uh, sect, if you will, every Christian sect begins to follow that law. We could baptize slaves, but it does not free them from their slavery. By the time the Constitution is being debated to be ratified, there are 700,000 estimated slaves in our beloved country, 18% of the population. This is why I like saying, this is why I know and I include myself in this in the past is that we love picking on the first beast because we can so easily identify them and we can pick on them to feel good about ourselves. And when it comes to the second beast, we immediately jump to some future prophecy, which may or may not happen, and even teach that the second beast really isn't even the beast yet. It's because we're not willing to look at this. Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, Hancock, Hopkins, names that inspire reverence to all of us. People fought, died, served for liberty, that they believed belonged to them only because they owned land and they were white. I spoke of Patrick Henry before. Do we recognize these words? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, what? Give me liberty, or what? Give me death. It's kind of ironic that that line starts with, can it be purchased by slavery? May God forbid it. Because later, In the fight between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists over the Constitution, the Anti-Federalists are still today portrayed as plucky populists. Patrick Henry leads that, that delegation, warning delegates who support the Constitution by standing up in the middle of the convention and screaming, they'll free your... And then notes that it's okay because fear is the passion of the slave. How about you? 12 years of public school, the first line was the only one that was taught to me. And unfortunately I haven't come across anybody in Adventist education that that one was ever taught to either. The celebration of Liberty, the document that is the foundation of the constitution contains the three fifths clause that we count all of our citizens except only three fifths of a slave. Now I don't wanna oversimplify the three fifths clause. The three fifths clause actually was enacted because the, the Southern delegates wanted the slaves counted as citizens because it gave them a five to one advantage in vote. So the idea that that representation would be uh, based on population, the Southerners were willing to count their slaves for that, but were no way ever going to allow them to vote. So the first compromise is the three fifths clause to make it even. Fugitive Slave Clause, the Constitution in its uh, DNA is not free. Celebration of the men who sacrificed to make it happen, it didn't belong to many. It wasn't their country then and throughout history, a lot believe, including me, that it's still not their country. Pastor Amin Hudson writes to us from Florida in the Gospel Coalition online on civil religion. He says this, he says, the dynamic is not new. Many of America's forefathers built this country believing God's hand of blessing was on them to bring good fortune to their endeavors. And for centuries, many have attributed America's superpower status to God's favor. So often the leader of this civil religion is Jesus. Whose supreme interests seem to be America first and reinstating a golden age of traditional values. This Jesus is a mascot for a political team. He's not the savior found in the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible has one nation, his people. Look at first Peter nine, two. He has one political interest, his kingdom. Matthew 6, verse 10. We become citizens of this kingdom through faith in him. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. God's number one priority is his glory and the advancement of that kingdom. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. John 6, 38, 4, 34. No earthly nation, including America, has a monopoly on God's favor and blessing. All God's promises and blessings are directed toward the multi-ethnic, multicultural, multinational body of Christ. Sorry, pastor, I messed up his last line. By the way, our own history would agree with him. Author and historian, Adventist historian, Kevin Burton reminds us that says that though many Adventists avoided association with political parties, we all know that, right? In fact, we carry that to today. A lot of us believe we shouldn't be politically involved at all, which I don't think is the case. But here's where it rises from. We forget the time that they came up. We forget the time that this was 1840 all the way through to 1863. But you know, there was one political party in 1840 that got a bunch of Adventist attention and a significant number of Adventists decided to join that party. They called it the Liberty Party. It had one plank in its platform. You know what it was? The abolition of slavery, that's it. And the restoration of equality of rights among all men. In 1848, the Liberty Party nominated Garrett Smith, a prominent abolitionist and Millerite Adventist, Sabbath observer as candidate for president of the United States. In the 50s and the 60s, 1850s and the 60s, Adventists petitioned against more issues like the death penalty, believing that both slavery and capital punishment represented systems of brutality that coerced individuals. The 1850 Fugitive Slave Act and the Kansas-Nebraska Act, 1854. In the 1860s, Seventh-day Adventists sometimes placed the denomination's name on petitions they wrote and circulated. They put the denomination's name on it. In April of 1862, for example, a group of 44 Seventh-day Adventists and others from Lynn County, Iowa, testified, Our professions of Christianity and boasts of liberty are but a mockery in the sight of the nations of the earth and of the God of the universe, so long as we delay practically to recognize the inalienable right of all men to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They then urged Abraham Lincoln and Congress to immediately abolish the great unnatural crime of slavery, the exhaustless, inveterate source of our national ruin. Revelation 13 1 to 8, according to our founders reveals that the two horned beast enforces idolatry. Adventists identified America as this beast because it professed to uphold religious and civil liberty, the two horns. Remember, the horns, if they're separate, is no problem. It's when they all both come together. So our founders even saw the two horns as civil and national religion coming together. by the way, the, the, the chains that is holding that beast in place with its two horns are creeds and slavery. Slavery, a way to force citizens into something against their will. And a creed actually can force a believer into something against their will. And the reason they saw that as as an abomination in this beast is because in reality, those privileges, a national religion and a church religion, claiming to be Christian, denied privileges to religious and racial minorities every day. And they said, this is our national ruin. We're gonna talk about the three angels message when we conclude. But did you know that the early Adventists looked at the second angels message that Babylon had fallen? For those of us who know what the second angels message is, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. What is the command to the people about Babylon? It's what? To come out of her. It's to come out of her. The founders said, the second angel warned that Babylon was fallen. The Millerites came out of the Protestant churches, Babylon, because they supported slavery. Not because they worshiped on Sunday, but because they supported slavery. That was the second angel's message. I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they were Jews and are not, but are what? Lying. If we claim to be Christian and that our Christianity is bound up in a national or civil religion, we're not telling the truth, we're what? We're liars. I'll make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I what? that I love you. There are only two churches in the seven churches that have no rebuke from Jesus, Smyrna and Philadelphia. And Philadelphia and Smyrna are only recognized that have no rebuke is because they have not soiled their robes with looking for political or authoritative power, or to begin to enforce their religious belief through some sort of authoritative power. Smyrna was the Church of the Martyrs. Pointed this out a couple of weeks ago. Does a martyr have anything to fear? Not at all. If a martyr can, can give their life to truly lay down their life for someone other than themselves, they've got nothing to fear. They can't be uh, coerced into anything, can they? And then there's Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Philadelphia, even in the midst of all this, uh, the rise of the second beast, Philadelphia is commended and no rebuke. Why? Because you have but little power. Only two churches also are offered the love of Jesus. Philadelphia has it because they don't exercise their power from anything else but that love. In other words, Philadelphia identifies their power with the love of Christ, and they shun any other power that could begin to soil that message. You know the other church? Is the only other church that has offered the love of Jesus? Laodicea, the one who comes after it, the one who actually closes the door that Jesus said could never be closed, us. But Jesus seems to think that the power of love can overcome no matter how bad we have gotten or how bad it gets. Jesus seems to think that love means something. And he tells Philadelphia, I love you. And he tells Laodicea, even though we've locked him out, he tells us, I love you too. This should be enough. We prove every day that it isn't, though, don't we? But Jesus says, okay, I love you. Keep coming back. And please, for for the love of everything holy, somebody come open the door. I know this isn't easy. Thank you for staying on the train. And I hope we can continue to ride this pull back to expose that we can confess and be forgiven and move forward because this is only gonna get worse. And as always, I'm thankful that you and I, us, we get to do it together.